I'm so excited for you to hear from Matthew Woods, who is an educator, an author, a podcaster, an administrator. He'll tell you all about the amazing accomplishments and things that he's got going on. But we also talk about leading for equity. We talk about shared leadership. And what I think is really interesting, a deep dive into thinking about data that is perception-based and operation-based. I'm so excited for you to hear from Matthew Woods. So let's dive on into the episode. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Matt, welcome to the show. Can you just introduce yourself for our audience in whatever way feels relevant to you? Definitely, definitely, Lindsay. Well, like I said, thank you for having me. My name's Matt Woods. I am, I guess you could say, a career educator, serving a lot of different capacities. Um, I've been high school teacher, taught at the collegiate level um, as well, and then also as an administrator, I've been a uh, middle school uh, and high school assistant principal. And then I've been a middle school principal, and I'm currently working um, as a director in the central office in the school system I work at now. I do a lot of stuff on the side, too. I've got a book series, a children's book series that I authored, um, I Want to Be, based on my son. Um, working on my, my first leadership book now, The Sandbox Mentality, Empowering Leadership. So that's probably why you can kind of see the bags under my eyes in conjunction with the doctorate I'm trying to finish up uh, as well. So you probably know the grind of that, writing these papers and, and research and whatnot. And then also I do a lot of uh, leadership coaching now. So yeah, I've got my my hands in a lot of different pots, you could say. I'm, I'm always staying busy, but you know I kind of keep everything kind of under umbrella, obviously, of education, um, working with students in any capacity, and then even with other educators and leaders and so forth. As you are coming into this space with us today, I am curious to kind of get your thoughts on Bettina Love's idea of freedom dreaming, which she describes as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. So you're doing all this work in all these different domains of education. So I'm curious to know what's the big dream that you hold for the field of education? Well, first, let me say shout out Dr. Bettina Love. Um, she was actually uh, University of Georgia down there when I had started grad school down there back in the day. So That's shout awesome. out Dr. Love if you hear this. Great person, uh, great work, obviously. So like I said, I love that quote that you you put in there. Um, the big dream I would say for the field of education is that we get to a place where all students leave our, our schools, leave our colleges, universities, uh, trade schools, whatever you want to call it they leave with a purpose. I think sometimes educators, we kind of get it twisted. We're like, kids should kind of come in a little bit with their interests. But 
I've always kind of said that's like a, a 50-50 mentality. They come in a little bit with what they, they think they want to do. And then we kind of throw different things at them to expose them to, you know, the wider, the wider world, um, different skills they might not have thought of, different, different traits, you know, that they might then pick up talents for and so forth, or that that talent leads them to. And then from there, they find, you know, their niche and they, they kind of run with it. I think that is like my biggest dream because I think for all of us who are engaged in this work and whatever spectrum of education you're in, we still have pockets of kids that, that don't feel connected to what we're doing. Um, and not only do they not feel connected to what we're doing, they, they leave us and they don't have that sense of purpose. And it's very unfortunate because then you hear these stories about kids talking about them trying to find their way. You know, they, they feel discouraged. They're like, ah, it took me so many years to finally figure out what I was good at. But then once I found it, I could kind of run with it. And when I hear those stories, you know, obviously I'm, I'm always happy for those kids and individuals once they obtain that. But then I always kind of wonder, man, if we could have tapped into that sooner, what then could they have done? Like building on that even more. Um, because, you know, time is very precious and, and we're not afforded the luxury of more time. We've only afforded the amount that God gives us. So that's my big dream, just that everybody can kind of find their, their niche. And um, obviously that leads, at least in my opinion, to what we talk about, um, the different injustices. Because when everyone finds their purpose, they make strides towards whatever different things are, you know? I always tell people, you know, I don't have to tell you really what's right or wrong, but if I teach you critical thinking skills, you'll connect the dots yourself. And all I'm doing is just facilitating that, that movement. There are so many things that I love about that. One, just the idea that everyone benefits from having a sense of purpose to the idea of just possibility creation. So school as blending what students are already coming in with because they are coming in with some things but you're right that not every student has that I'm going to do this kind of drive and focus purpose so it's like what is out there for me let's introduce you to the possibilities let's make those connections and then also I'm curious to know I think so many teachers are like yeah that sounds great this is a this is what I want to do and on the one-on-one -on -one level teacher to student sometimes I think that that's where that lies a lot of times, those individual connections. But I'm wondering from a leadership point of view, are there any structures or practices that you found to make sure students are connected with their purpose, either in how we teach, in what we teach, in larger school policies or, or points of connection with students? Yeah, great, great points. This was, I guess, kind of directed at all my leaders out there, administrators and, and pseudo leaders, people you know, getting ready to take that, that next step. Um, in whatever role or fashion. One thing you learn is that to be an effective leader, if you put the, the people that you, that you serve in that capacity in the right spots, then it trickles down to the, the next group, right? So when I was a teacher, if, if I took care of myself and the people who were in charge of me helped put me in the position and gave me the tools and the resources to do what's best for kids, then it came out through my instruction, right? And then students would improve student achievement, however you want to look at it that way, right? So then that mindset really kind of takes you when you talk about leadership, you know? 
when you're in these different roles, if you're serving the, the folks who look up to you and who, who need you to make these hard decisions, to get them these resources, to give them certain uh, flexibility to make and empower them to make certain decisions, then it's gonna have the trickle down effect for the students, right? And, and a good example, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. There's a lot of educators out there who struggle with critical thinking. And I can see you shake your head. I know the listeners can see it. That's gonna kind of hit hard for a lot of people. They're gonna sit there and kind of reflect on what I'm saying. There, there's a lot of educators who struggle with critical thinking. So then the caveat to that should be, it shouldn't shock you that a lot of students struggle with critical thinking. Why is that? Because if we haven't empowered um, teachers and educators to, to embed these type of practices in their instruction, right? Then it's not gonna have the effect that we want for students, but vice versa. If we work on those things and, and empower our teachers to make these decisions, and, and that goes from you know, pre-service teachers all the way to in-service teachers that we have now, if folks are operating within that mindset, then obviously we're gonna see the proof of the pudding in the way the kids respond. So that's just like I said, like just one example that really kind of sticks out. Um, another piece is when we talk about um, differentiation, like in the classroom, right? You know, that's the, that's the, the big buzzword. Lord knows it's been the big buzzword since I started way back when getting an education. And my comeback to folks when I hear people say like, I'm, I'm struggling with kids, differentiate. And I, and I say to folks, okay, explain to me how you are differentiating what you're doing. And they're like, well, that's what I'm trying to do with kids. And I'm like, exactly. So how have you modeled what you're trying to get the kids to do? Because if you've modeled different learning styles, different strategies and so forth, but then add in the caveat, I'm empowering you to make this decision. So when we're doing some of these activities, Lindsay, you choose how you want to give me that product back out of these various categories. Then the kids feel empowered to do it because they've seen you model it. So yeah, I think those are like the two biggies that just kind of come to mind as you as you said that, like how to kind of, you know, exercise it, but then model it in a way where um, teachers can do it, but then most importantly, our kids can do it. That is awesome. So I'm thinking about this idea of modeling and critical thinking and in, in line with, you know, discussions of equity and leading for justice. I'm also thinking about the idea of critical thinking, I think is often used in education in a way that almost feels divorced from justice. Like it's, it's critical thinking, but like people talk about multiple perspectives or something as a way to like yes. keep things balanced or whatever without a line of power and justice kind of as part of the conversation. And so I'm curious to know, how do you as a leader support teachers and educators and other leaders to model critical thinking in a way that is thoughtful around issues of justice and injustice and thus then be able to have those conversations and model that behavior for students in conversations related to justice. Right, I think, I think uh, the first piece is you have some type of procedure, policy, instructional practice, whatever, whatever you wanna call it, whatever, whatever realm you're in, that allows for feedback, right? Now, taking a step further, when you get the feedback, you show somebody 
that you are receptive to the feedback. That doesn't mean you're changing something, but that means people can tell you actually listened to what they were saying, you thought about it, and now you're trying to apply. Now you applying it might be, hey, Lindsay, I hear what you're saying. You, you want us to have an hour and a half for lunch every day. And I, and I get that. I would love to have an extra hour to eat my burger and sit there and, you know, probably eat some ice cream as well in the cafeteria. But do you see how this bleeds over into your other classes? So what I would say is if you're saying that we have a big problem in our school, that the lunches are shorter, how about this? Why don't you help me start timing how long it takes from you to get to the cafeteria with your class? Like, show me how long that's taking you. Because then the kids will come back and say, you know what, Mr. Woods, what I'm noticing is that every time we go out there, that other class keeps bumping into us. Now, that might be something kind of small or minor, but then the administrator in me might actually look at our operational procedures and say, you know what, if I stagger that class two minutes before they go down to lunch, that two minutes could get them from point A to point B sooner through the lunch line. And I've actually built in more perception of time for the child. Because remember, if I'm, and I'm just throwing, you know, just kind of um, throwing this off the top of my head, but like if we said lunch is 30 minutes, that would include what time the kid leaves the class to get down there. So if I could make that small adjustment to the child, they're like, oh, Mr. Wood, like I'm in there, I got more time. In, in the cafeteria, all I did was just stagger this other class, but the child's perception has changed. I throw that example out there to you, Lindsay, because I think a lot of times when we start talking about equity and social justice, what happens is there's always an emotional reaction. You know, someone is feeling marginalized or discouraged, and then you have a group over here who's like, I don't see the problem. And everything is fine. Like, I don't get why you just won't assimilate to what I'm doing, right? So usually you have a, a conflict there. You have people just competing, just arguing with each other. But one thing that I, I always try to throw to folks when we talk about these type of topics is you have to realize the power dynamics where you're at. So like, if you're the administrator, you're the educator, and kids are coming to you, you have the authority in all, in all spectrums, in, in all realms. Like, yeah, there's certain things that kind of impede certain decisions and so forth. But at the end of the day, you're you're pretty much the boss in all those settings for for the child, right? And especially if then you start talking about marginalized group of children, you know, and I'm talking about my students of color, disabilities, socioeconomic, so forth, right? So there's a lot of different layers to kind of unpack during these different power dynamics and different conversations. But what I've always tried to tell folks, and one thing that I've tried to do a lot of reflection on. And my interactions with people is listen to the meat of what they're saying to kind of break down, is this an actual issue, something that like I know I can tangibly fix, or is this a perception issue, right? Because even whatever the issue is, if I fix the tangible issue or I fix the perception issue, I've still fixed the issue or I've still made strides towards the solution for that student or those group of folks who are voicing the concerns. But a lot of times, and I think for a lot of us who are engaged in this kind of work, you kind of see 
people just jump to the tangible thing. Like, what can I fix? And this person is asking me, and it's a problem. They want me to fix this when there's not really a problem. But then I would tell them, if that person has a perception problem of what you're doing, well, guess what? That's still a problem. And if you don't correct it, it's going to lead to a real issue that then you're going to have to logistically fix, in this case, in a classroom, a school, so forth. I love that distinction of perception problems and then like actual policy-based or practice-based issues, because I think it lends itself to so many different possible solutions or avenues for solutions. We could have more conversations. We could survey students and teachers more regularly to get that perception data and treat that as like an actual data set, as opposed to the quantitative data that we often look at as data, like test scores and such. There's so much potential there in terms of just knowing the perceptions and being able to have that conversation about perceptions. I think you're, you're talking as well about the example of the cafeteria also shared decision-making and being inclusive with students in terms of how policies and practices are actually decided upon and who's literally at the table for those conversations. So I'm curious to know if, if you have any more thoughts or examples of that process of decision-making and ways to involve students and teachers in, you know, school-based or district-based decisions. I think a lot of times we're talking about empathy, right? And I tell people, and I, and I just, I'll just use me as an example. I'm very cautious when folks try to use me as like an example to kids. And what I mean by that is they'll say, well, you know, well, Matt did it. You know, Matt did it this way. You, you all can do it this way. And I always tell people and I say, well, let me just give you a little backstory about Matt. Matt is actually very critical of every space that he walks in, even if I don't say this to you. And what do I mean? When Matt came through school, Matt, as a, as a high schooler, before anyone had to say anything to me, I started realizing these classes that I'm taking, I seem to be the only kid that looks like me, relative. Then I went off to college. Then I realized in the program that I was in, I seem to be the only one of maybe two, once again. And then as I got into my career, I noticed that as I moved up in my career, the, the number of folks who resemble me and my background and my experiences get smaller and smaller. So I say that to say, I'm always very critical of the space that I'm in because I realize that there are gonna be certain experiences that I have that I know that if I don't have certain relationships with people, I can't just be very transparent and say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is my perception because why? Because I'm aware of my surroundings, right? I say that to say, if I figured that out, and there's a lot of other folks obviously out there who've done the same thing, then what do you think the kids are thinking? So sometimes I think we, we overthink certain procedures and policies and rules because I always tell people like, how would you feel in this situation? Okay, the kid feels the same way. But once again, it goes back to earlier part of our conversation. Regardless of what policy, procedure, and I don't want this to sound like I'm taking shots at any policies or procedures that, that are doing this work or is engaging in it, but I'm personally very critical when I ask, what is the feedback? Show me the, the information that you gather, perception versus the operational piece on it. 
and then tell me how you've collected feedback that's now informing your reflection and your decision making. Because if you can't do that, you can put a good policy up there or a good strategy, and then it can be outdated in a couple of years. And it's funny because I was a former social studies teacher. So I love social studies, love history. And I always frame stuff from, from a time period, from a perspective. And I'm like, you know, if Mr. Woods went back 100 years, clearly there would be a whole different dynamic that I would be going through. And a lot of times, you know, kids would get a chuckle, they laugh, but the kids get it. And, and I tell people like, okay, so this is why whatever policy that you put out there, and especially, especially when we're being talking about something as sensitive as equity, you have to build in procedures that allow constant reflection. And then you have to be open to the, the feedback that you get back. You have to really kind of stop and say, like, is something going on? And did I put this out there assuming this would occur and it, and it fell flat on my face? Because I think as educators, we go in with things with the right intentions. You know, right? We, we say we, we care about kids. You know, like I care about all my kids, but then my comeback to people is you care about them, but you don't like everything they do. I've never met one teacher who has told me every kid they've taught in their entire career. Oh yeah. I want my kid to act like every kid that I taught. Of course not. Listeners out there. I have a son at home. He's about to be too. Love that little guy. Love him. But there's a lot of stuff I see kids doing. I'm like, boy, he better not ever act like that. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't treat them with respect and care about them. But now when we blur the line and get into equity, I talk about inclusiveness, tell people all the time, I've never met a teacher or an educator tell me they're not inclusive, but I know a lot of teachers and educators who are not inclusive based on their practices. But most importantly, based on the perception of the students and the feedback students give. But once again, we don't wanna hear that. We don't wanna hear from people about their perceptions and their experiences regarding different policies and so forth. Because if we did, we would make that systematic change at a much quicker rate than what we've seen occurring in the past. My research is based in shared leadership practices. And so I talk a lot about the process of how you make the policy is more sustainable than the policy itself. And so let's not talk about the policy. So I feel like you're adding this other layer in there of how are those feedback loops to, I imagine, various stakeholders a part of the conversation about policy and practice in an ongoing way? Yeah. And if I can, Lindsay, what you're seeing now, just, just everywhere, politics, education, social norms that people have or don't have, you know, whatever, whatever your genre, whatever side of the spectrum you're on with all of it. One of the things that's coming up that I don't hear people say, which personally bothers me a lot, is from one side or one group, you hear a lot of folks say, I don't really see why everything's changing right now. Like, I don't see why there's such a push for like equity. Like, why are we hearing about equity? And, and my comeback to people isn't really to kind of be combative with them. I just say, listen, these conversations have been happening for years. These conversations that you're hearing now are not new. What's become new, like you had just alluded to, is the way policies and things are changing or being drafted in conjunction with shared leadership. Because now that feedback piece is starting to become more important. Old school, we drop a policy or we just say, this is what we do. 
that's the end of it. I mean, a lot of us who came through school when I was in school, taking it to education, teacher said, this is what you do, and that's the end of it. But what no one ever really talked about back then was, okay, yeah, that worked for some kids, but that didn't work for everybody. And there was nothing there that kind of brought others back into the front. What it did was it just discouraged them and it made them say, I hate school. And then they get older, right? They have kids, they go on with that same mindset. So then they're already approaching us as educators with that, that negativity. Because I remember my experiences in school. So I already know how you're, what you're trying to do to my child. And, and I mean, it just festers and, and you've created a cycle. And for a lot of us engaged in education, engaged in this kind of work, we know cycles are very hard to break. When someone is, is in a cycle, especially a generational cycle, doesn't matter if we're talking about education, social economic background, so forth, that gets hard to grab somebody out of it because for all the good that you're trying to do, they still see this, this vast majority in this historical landscape of, of this right here. So you have to be very intentional and you really have to put your finger on the pulse and keep at it. To, to grab folks out of those circumstances, but just kind of show them, hey, look, this is what we're trying to do to make it as inclusive as we want it to be. You are dropping some amazing insight right now. Thank you so much for all of this. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in terms of the challenges of leading for equity or a specific challenge that you've overcome as you think about leading for equity before we move to our final call to action? When it comes to equity, and, and I'll speak for me specifically, I try to take a very backdoor approach, like behind the scenes approach. And what I mean by that is I'm very aware that the moment someone says equity and they see me, he's automatically talking about race. And I call people out on it all the time. Like, what would make you assume that I'm just automatically talking about race? Because I could be looking at some data and we talking about gender or we talking about socioeconomics. Equity bleeds into a lot of different caveats. You just look at me and size me up and assume that. But I, over the years now, I've used this teachable moment because then I flip it back and I say, would you say that to that person? They talk about equity? No. So sometimes what I've learned is you've really got to be true to yourself and you've got to kind of differentiate your approach on different things. I've now noticed in my mannerisms, in the way, you know, I do my work, conduct stuff, I kind of know when it's like, hey, look, this is a situation I should kind of take the lead in. And this is one where I'm actually going to do more good by influencing the situation, causing these conversations to happen. But look, I'm just going to be Batman to your Robin. I'm going to get more bang for my buck. More things are going to get across because once again, I'm very aware of my surroundings and uh, of perceptions of people in the different spaces that I kind of come and go in. And I think that's very difficult for a lot of us, for a lot of people, because everybody, I think, wants to, to do good work in, in the, the expertise that they are. They feel like I have to be the one out there, you know, leading the charge on whatever it is. But sometimes you can do more good having somebody else be, be the spokesperson for you. I can tell that you are going to deliver this message better than I ever could to maybe this group of people that I'm talking to. So you know what? In this case, 
I need you to be the, the mascot, the person to, to get it across. And I know if I'm here in this group or this context, maybe it's me. And Lindsay, you know, in this kind, maybe it's you. I mean, that's a complete understanding. And I think that's how, when you talk about stuff related to equity, how you're going to start seeing more strides or how I encourage the listeners out there to get more strides with that work to happen. Such a great point that plays into who we are as people, bringing our full selves to work and knowing that us and all of the intersections of all the pieces of our identity come with us into work and being able to have that happen. And also an understanding of sometimes you need people to step up, like you were saying, for particular audiences and take on that burden of like, this is a tough audience. Like I have dealt with this stuff, whatever it is, right? Racial, gender, linguistic injustice. And I now need someone to take this on. Like you need to be out there. You need to be interfacing with that group of people. I am not in that space to take that on right now. And that's an important acknowledgement, I think, for people who are in this work. Yeah. And for, and for folks who are listening, who might be kind of shocked, I'm saying that I, I, you know, I can put, they're probably, Hey, what are you talking about? It's the same way when you look at human behavior, right? So, you know, my social studies lens coming back out. So, so shout out to all my social studies teachers listening. That social context applies to pretty much all human behavior. What do I mean by that? We gravitate towards folks that we feel we have a connection with. I tell people all the time that to get too deep on here, you think about religion. Religion, if you think of places of worship, majority of them are not very diverse and multifaceted, right? But then, it, and I always tell people, as like I said, former social studies teacher right here, it's such a complete irony because then you think about any religion you could think of talks about inclusiveness and all this but then most that you go to it's like hey this really doesn't kind of fit what we just talked about right and and I say that to folks because that's probably one of the biggest examples that can kind of you know give everybody a visual what I mean by that that doesn't mean people in those contexts aren't being inclusive that's definitely not what I'm saying but what I'm saying is we just naturally gravitate to more folks we feel some type of connection to right I'm a former athlete I naturally gravitate to spaces where there are folks who are former athletes. Why is that? We automatically have something in common. We can strike up a conversation. Those examples are very parallel and they can bleed over into all different things, right? So when we talk now about equity, you're trying to deliver a message. Now I'm delivering it to the majority who aren't being marginalized you typically need somebody to help convey that message. You need someone to help solicit that buy-in. You need someone to say, hey, look, do you see the why? I know naturally or implicitly you don't see it, right? Because you don't have that connection. But now do you see when this person is talking and they're speaking to you with that passion? Okay, there might be something there. I'm going to start gravitating it to as we kind of think about all of the great things we have talked about today, we've talked about that idea of perception versus operational data. We've talked about shared leadership practices, working with students, connecting to people who are in the groups that we gravitate to and being kind of beacons for, for justice work. 
I'm wondering what's one thing you would encourage listeners to do when they're ending this episode, something that they can do to live in alignment with these values of justice and equity. I'm actually going to direct this to maybe the complete 180, right? Because I feel like a, a majority of folks who are listening, they, they've already engaged in this work. They, they see it. But for the, the, the folks who probably tune in, are like, ah, you know, I'm hearing equity a lot. Think of it from the standpoint, just historically, okay? Don't, don't necessarily think about, this is what I'm hearing right now. This is my, my perception of what I see, right? Just, just look at it through a completely historical lens. And then just map out different time frames and look and say, okay, was this time period equitable for everybody? No, okay. Was this time period equitable for everybody? No. And I can go ahead and tell you all, you know, I'm going to go spoil the, the assessment for you. You're going to get all the way up to 2021 and you're going to realize, hey, there's someone who's always being left out, okay? Now, what you have to ask yourself, because I know there are folks out there like, well, duh, we know this. There is somebody always left out. Then you have to ask yourself, are there systematic barriers and implicit things in, in place that are hindering people before they get started, right? Are there systematic barriers and implicit things in place that are hindering different folks from getting started? If so, then right there, we're talking about inequity. It's not a, then a matter of, you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Hey, like you've got the same opportunity. No, now we're talking about that realistically, proven with data, you're starting off at a different part compared to everybody else, right? Now, for my educators out there, breaking this full circle, all of us know about standards. Regardless how you feel about them, we all know a standard is the minimum. We try to get all of our kiddos to that minimum. So if you believe that, regardless how you feel about your actual standards, right? But if you believe, hey, there is a standard, we should get all kids, why wouldn't that apply to equitable practices? Why wouldn't we say if this is the standard we believe that all of our kids should have, the type of life they should have, what are we doing to bring those resources policies and procedures up to a point that then they can leave our school, come to our schools and leave our schools with that same standard. And I think that speaks so much to the work of equity inherent in the definition of equity is a differentiator from equality, right? And so sometimes that's going to look like investing a lot more resources in students who haven't yet hit that standard because of all those systemic barriers. And so being able to name that one, identify that that's happening. And then two, be bold with your finances or whatever, you know, decision you're, you're working with and say, we are committed to this and we are putting our money and our practices and everything behind these values and move forward on that. So I love that as just the practice of just asking these questions will eventually lead you to that equity you're seeking by just inherently thinking about all of these things historically, modernly, and then what are we doing moving to action around them? 
This has been such a pleasure talking to you. You're doing so many things right now. And so I guess if you want to just choose one or two, what's something that you've either been working on, been learning more about, been thinking more about you want to share with our audience today? Golly, like you said, I, my mind started thinking about my checklist of things to do because I'm, I'm always doing something it feels like. Um, the, the biggest thing that I've been learning lately is how much I've grown as an educator because of my son. Really thinking about him through the lens of not just equity, but then also to, I guess, having a leg up per se, right? In education, kind of knowing the ins and outs, right? Kind of knowing, okay, statistically, he will start off at a disadvantage because he's a student of color, but then on top of that, he's actually biracial. My wife is white. So already knowing what the data will tell me, certain experiences he'll go through school has really kind of, I guess, triple invested my approach to things. Because once again, like, and you know, Lindsay, folks can't see you nodding your head, but like as educators, we know this, like the data supports what I'm saying. So this isn't like, this isn't me, you know, pulling a rabbit out the hat or, or just making some up. We know what the data will show for students of color, in this case, him, as he trickulates through school based on his experiences and what he'll come in contact with, right? That doesn't mean that will happen to him, but that just means the, the data's there that higher chance for these things to happen to him compared to others. So for me, it just really kind of has triple sparked, like I said, that, that fire inside of me to do good work for all kids. Um, so that, you know, at the tail end of my career, whenever that is, and when I'll be bald, we'll get gray and then be bald, I can leave knowing that I made an impact in the district I'm in, the schools I'm in, like I've left making an impact that things will, will be better for students like my son and just all other kids. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And, and finally, where can listeners learn more about you, connect with you online, read your books? Yeah. And thank you again, Lindsay, for having me. This has been great. I would say, you know, you, you can connect with me online. My uh, personal website is uh, leading out the woods, not out of the woods, leading out the woods.com. Also my, my podcast is available on all the different platforms. Once again, leading out the woods. You can follow, follow me or find me on Twitter. Love to connect with people. Um, Twitter's uh, at wood from a woods. And then um, my, my email is leading out the woods at gmail.com. Tried to keep it all pretty much the, the same. Um, always love to connect with folks. If you reach out, I'll definitely um, hit you back up. Awesome. And we can drop all of those in the show notes as well. So people can just click right on them and get in contact with you or follow you on social. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure talking to you and learning from you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show. So leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Mm -hmm.